0: I am Bob Wooden, and this is my first HPR recording. And to follow is the beginning of my Linux adventure. I started using a computer in 1994 at work. It made me more efficient. The first computer that I bought was at an auction of a former employer who had recently gone bankrupt. This was about 1995 or 1996. I was standing at the auction daydreaming and realized that the auctioneer was talking about a hundred and sixty dollars for this particular computer and i knew it was worth a whole lot more mostly i was there to see what they were getting for whatever that was in the building curiosity day off nothing to do just wanted to go see this design computer as we referred to it was a 386 ds processor that had the the math coprocessor built in Um, back then the math coprocessor was a separate chip you had to put on the board Uh, this is when they first built them in it had an eighty megabyte hard drive I don't remember how much ram it had uh, I believe it was a 14-inch monitor included was a 9-pin dot matrix printer uh, don't remember the brand and it was loaded with DOS and Windows for Workgroup 3.1 more importantly attached to the back of the computer was what we refer to as a design key it was a small dongle as it's also called uh, that attaches to the parallel port of the uh, computer that allows some very expensive preparatory software to save and print designs. Uh, We were designing kitchens and bathrooms and so forth and this was uh, important to give customers these um, documents that illustrated approximately what their new project was going to look like. The design key in the software is very very expensive that's why when they were talking about $160 I jumped right in and bought it when the dust satellite spent two hundred and fifteen dollars, and I had bought a complete working computer, so took it home and got to doing a little bit of research and figured out that just a few years before, three or four years before this was a two thousand dollar or so computer because of the dX chip. It was expensive um classic Pentiums had just been released the forty six processor had been out about four years, so essentially, I had a two processor generation old. Um, computer, uh, but I could work at home and that was going to be a big advantage for me uh, with my work. I could do more things and get more done. I just used floppy disks to take designs back and forth to work. Uh, other auctions that I went to, uh, different facilities that the same um, company was selling off the equipment from, the computers about six and eight hundred dollars, uh, so I definitely found the buy that year. Within a year or so I considered building a newer and faster computer. I had found a local computer supply store that primarily was selling one and two-year-old parts um, that they had um, purchased the overstock from other distributors from. Um, They had reasonable prices. Uh, You could go in and buy uh, a power supply this week, um, a case in a couple of weeks when you had the money, uh, a motherboard, processor, and as cash allowed, I kept buying pieces and, and storing them. And eventually, I came up with enough pieces to build a uh, new computer. It was a classic Pentium, a 120 megahertz uh, processor. Of course, I loaded it with my existing DOS and Windows for Workgroups. This. Windows 95, I believe, was due to be released pretty soon. It might have been 98, I forget. And it wasn't long before I had built two computers. One was my main desktop. Um, It started life as a 160 megahertz, uh, 166 megahertz, I believe, classic Pentium. Later in life, it grew to be a 233 just by changing out the processor. It had a 1.2 gigabyte hard drive, as I recall. The second machine was that original first build, that classic Pentium, 120 megahertz. It had, I had changed it and swapped out parts. I don't remember how much RAM it had, how big the hard drive was, doesn't matter. Both machines were using Windows 98 at this point, so I don't remember what year it was, but I remember doing this. The 120 MHz machine, I decided to make a firewall machine because there were issues with getting viruses and so forth. I purchased some preparatory firewall program that was $45 or so. After I'd had it six months, they sent me a renewal fee for $45 so I could get the updates. And then three months after that, they sent me a notice that if I wanted to upgrade to the next version, it was going to be $30 more. Three months after that, I got another renewal notice for $45. And I started to realize that this preparatory stuff was um, basically legalized extortion in my mind. They sold it to me, and it's only good for six months, and if I want to keep going, i got to buy more. So i got to keep sending the money all the time. It struck me as very odd. Consequently, I stopped paying for the updates, and sure enough, about a month later, I got a virus. So I had to reload Windows 98 to fix it. I had stopped paying for the firewall, so that was gone, and I began to look at Linux. What about this Linux thing? Reading that a user could try a CD thing, a live CD, I dug around and found a magazine that I had bought, and sure enough, within the magazine was a Nopix CD. I put the CD into the CD-ROM of my best computer and figured out how to get it to boot to the CD-ROM. And it started, and there in just a few minutes was a geographical screen, icons like Windows. You clicked them, you did things, what's this? Oh, a list of hardware, and I clicked on the list and it listed everything that was in the computer, the RAM, the, the processor, and everything. It was amazing, and when I turned it off, I still had my Windows machine, so I was safe, in my mind. One of the things that I started doing, oh, about them, because I was tinkering with so many computers, is I began uh, collecting uh, computer hardware. My wife and I went to a garage sale uh, somewhere near our house, and there was a a computer there that a person had for sale, and I got to reading what the little card said that it was, and it was a Packard Bell. It has 75 megahertz classic processor in it. Classic Pentium. It was a complete computer, hard drives, everything was in it, just no monitor and so forth. That was fine with me, and I think I bought it for twenty dollars or something like that. This classic penny went home and eventually got loaded with uh, with Red Hat six point something or other. I bought some uh, CDs online from one of the economical uh, CD making companies. At that time, there was uh, two or three of them around. I think Cheap CDs was one. I forget the other names of the companies are all kind of gone now. And essentially, you were paying them for the cost of the CD to get the contents on it. Now, my internet connection was a dial-up modem, so uh, there was no downloading a big ISO image. And this was a cheap and convenient way for a dollar or two or three per CD. uh, Was you'd get a copy of the current ISO image of, in this case, Red Hat six point whatever. Using these CDs, um, I loaded, and because I didn't have much to lose, I uh, reloaded, tried different anaconda settings. Uh, That's the uh, loader for Red Hat. Um, It would lock up and crash because I had things set wrong. I'd reload it and accept the defaults, and then it'd run for a while. And it was a way to to play with software and see how you could um, manipulate the settings and and just in loading it, how, how you could make it different. Uh, choosing different file base, you know, ext3s and ext2 I think at the time it was ext2, choosing different file systems and so forth, just see what it does um, It ran KDE at the time, I'm pretty sure that's what it was running yes it was slow because it was a Pentium 75 but hey it was my first attempt at loading uh, uh, Linux and it was fun along the way something had gone wrong with my Windows 98 desktop, it had become sluggish it would take a long time to start. Uh, when you clicked on the web browser, uh, it was slow to to open. You get these recurring pop ups and occasionally lock up and quit. And I'd have to do a lot of what I would call hard restarts, where you press the power button in and force it to shut down. About late two thousand and two, early two thousand and three, I had collected enough parts uh, from my cannibalized garage sale machines and so forth, that I had some extra hard drives. So I decided to pull the Windows 98 hard drive from my main machine, knowing that I could plug it back in and go back to Windows if I wanted to. And on that new, different hard drive, I loaded Red Hat 6, uh, whatever it was, 6.2, 6.3, I don't remember. It was interesting that Red Hat saw my printer, Prior to that, Novix wouldn't see the printer. I had to manually set it and so forth. So I had learned how to do that. Uh, Red Hat saw my printer during installation and set it up. The only thing I had to go in and change was uh, I had to reconfigure it for a US letter size because it had done an A4 size. So some minor configuration issues and I had a uh, operational Linux machine that could print and do things that I wanted to do. So I began to realize that I didn't think I was going to be needing Windows anymore. And this is probably good because all the Windows machines I had were running the same copy of Windows 98 SE. And as we all know, Microsoft doesn't like that. I didn't pay them for both those copies. So uh, Windows 2000 had recently come out. It was very expensive. Uh, As I recall, it was $150 or more per copy. And I was just uncomfortable giving them money when they didn't give you much. It also needed an office suite. I don't know how much Microsoft Office was at that time. It was a lot of money, several hundred dollars. I always remember the presentation Bill Gates was doing at some Microsoft conference or some event. As he was doing it and clicking Windows 95 or 98, whichever it was, the big blue screen of death popped up behind him on the monster screen and the whole crowd laughed. He thought it was really funny. Those issues and the, my experience with the firewall program that was kind of felt like I was being extorted as opposed to allowed to use their software... That expense there, it just kept pushing me towards free software. Why would you pay somebody over and over again to use their product when it's not very good? That puzzled me. This preparatory design program that I had been using over the years uh, had their own little internal DOS and Windows work going on. They had been a DOS program for years and years and years. Remember, this is a design program that was expensive. $1,500 a copy, I believe. Annual support was four to $500 a year. And you got all the upgrades for that amount. Uh, again, legalized extortion, but, you know, if you're going to stay current, you have to pay the bill. So, they had their own internal DOS and Windows war going on. That DOS was better than they were never going to go Windows because you could see Windows was unstable, blah, 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 blah. blah and they kept this up for a long time. Lo and behold, most of the computers that you could buy at that time were preloaded with Windows. You didn't have any other choice. And it had this huge bundle of software packages that was just a big load of extra crap that they stuck on the computer because those were the deals they made so companies could get their software out and to the world. problem with that is that this preparatory design program seemed to feel that they needed to be the only program on that computer conflicting things that would happen in the computer, their program would crash, just the program, sometimes just the whole computer, and so forth. Now, about 2005, 2006, now, history teaches us that uh, that design program it came out with a version 6.0. Interestingly, it was Windows-based. History has taught us, and there's been some some hint of an admission that um, the company was growing pretty fast. They had a rather substantial R&D department. And within the R&D department, of course, they're extremely secretive. They didn't want to tell anybody what was going on. But there were rumors that they were working on a Unix-based version of their software that would run on some form of Unix. The uh, The whole world talked and kind of assumed it would probably be Linux. Didn't know. I progressed to a point where I wasn't working at home much anymore. I wanted to leave my work at work. and This allowed my computers at home to be Linux-based, and therefore that was my final hurdle for no more use of Windows. So, my primary machine became a 100% Linux machine. I had previously dual-booted to that point. Um, I had now gone ahead and removed the windows and set up the machine as a singular Linux machine. That was all that was on it. This began the process of networking machines together. I began studying networks, what was needed for wiring, what was needed for hardware, uh, switches, hubs, I understood all that, and how could I do this? Uh, it was an experiment, nothing more. Spend as little as possible, try these things, and learn. Luckily, I live near a Micro Center. If you've never been to one and you get a chance, and you can go to their website, search it out see where the stars are. And if you get a chance, go to one of these stores. The at the time I was working on networking things and trying to decide between a switch and a hub and which was better. Okay, so I go to Micro Center, see how much I'm going to spend, get some wire and, and uh, get get a hub or a switch and so forth. And I stand back and I look at this point of sale that has Ethernet switches and Ethernet hubs there and five and eight ports up to monstrous 48 port and several hundred dollar switches and so forth. And just standing back and the logic was, which one's better, switch or a hub? And as I looked, there were much, much more switches than there were hubs. And as I went elsewhere and read and learned, I found that switches were kind of the new thing. They were better than hubs for a number of reasons. Um, don't remember the reasons why at this point it was research. Then I've, of course, forgotten that. So to create a small network, I ended up buying a switch because they were only about 15 or 20% more than the same hub. A 5-port hub might have been $30, and a 5-port um, switch might have been $40. I, I don't remember the prices, but like that. So not a huge jump to go to a switch, which was considered better for uh, a LAN wire setup. So I created this simple network at home so I could share my internet connection across the LAN to my other computers, including sharing it to my wife's computer, which was a Windows laptop that her work had provided for her. One machine would automatically dial the dial-up connection and start, and the internet was accessible on the uh, LAN system to all the computers at that time. So if anyone requested internet connection, I could hear in the basement, the modem dialing up and taking the phone and connecting. Of course, we had one phone line in the house, and if we used it for that, we couldn't get phone calls. This is about the cusp of cell phones taking off. Part of this evolution at this time was an experiment with LTSP. This is the Linux Terminal Server Project. It is the ability to have a faster computer, and it is faster. You want a server to be very, very fast. This computer functions as a server, in my case, sat in the basement and ran by itself. Remember that old classic Pentium 75 Packard Bell that I bought at a garage sale? Well, it became a client to that server. Linux Terminal Server Project as no software on the client, accesses... Um, the the PXE image or a boot image uh, on the server to essentially send the signal to your client and have the client act the exactly the same as the desktop. In, in my case, the basement or elsewhere. Very small CPU load. All the work is being done by the server in the basement, and the responses on the screen are as fast as the server is in the basement. So essentially, I'm sitting at a 75 megahertz machine, and it's acting like a 233 megahertz machine, because that's the server that was running in the basement. It was quick and responsive. The CPU load was so small, and it almost didn't generate any heat, I decided to make my uh, client silent. So I opened the case up, and I took the fan off the CPU heatsink, which left just the heatsink and no fan. And that turned out to be kind of a bad idea, as would be expected. Within three or four months or six months, the CPU died and my client died. Uh, but I had experimented with the Linux terminal server stuff. It was fascinating. Just think what could be done with a large server in a single location and feed 20 or 30 clients off of it at once. Very, very interesting in my mind. Somewhere in here, I discovered Linux updates. Uh, I'd been running Linux for a year or more. I, uh, Didn't know and had to learn kind of the hard way that updates were free because it's free software and As a result, I had machines that didn't run the greatest they did run, but they weren't current by any means Not understanding at the time Linux being so new we didn't have to deal with viruses and so forth so it really wasn't a huge huge issue, but At the time, I was coming from Windows where, you know, you had to pay for everything and then pay every six months for everything and then pay for updates and pay for everything and pay and keep paying and pay some more, as we all know. And I never expected that, you know, Linux updates were no charge. I was afraid that if I did updates that they would, you know, find me, they could figure out that I was doing free updates and taking it. I shouldn't do that. And so I, for a year or more, did not. Yes, I would not do updates. Then one day I was reading an article in one of my uh, Linux magazines. I don't remember which one. and They were talking about updates and how they were no charge, and you just clicked like this, and this is how you did it, and tell it that, and it downloads, and it installs it automatically, and your computer is current to the most current software that's available. I was amazed by this. So I did a little door checking and found another article about it, and I went, okay, then I should do this. Realizing I am still on a dial-up modem at this point, so knowing that I can't, and potentially might, tie up the whole system uh, with the dial-up modem for a long time, I waited until before I went to bed, and I went downstairs and, and clicked on update, and sure enough, the little box pops up, and it starts downloading software, and the computer is sitting there churning away, and it's a slow download, but it's still coming. I decided that it was going to take a long time. I really couldn't tell how long. And I so I went to bed and actually did get to sleep that night and woke up four or five o'clock the next morning, trolley downstairs right away, and sure enough the the download was done um It was there waiting and asking me if I wanted to install it. I said, "Of course, yes, it began the install process, not knowing how long that was going to take at least I knew and known that I had moved forward to the next step. went back upstairs, went to bed for an hour or two, and got up, and the computer was up to date uh, The dial-up modem had been up all night long connected and that was fine. I had done the updates and the computer was ran much better uh, and it was faster and so I determined that yes this was a good thing. Uh, About the same time we were having desktop wars back then between KDE and uh, GNOME 1.4. A lot of media articles about which one was better this one that one and so forth. Typical arguments. Gnome one point four had been around for quite a while. It was pretty stable. It hadn't changed much since whenever it started. Uh, KDE was just new at that point. I believe they'd come out with version three. I kind of forget which one it was. It was new and improved and a different look. It looked very very similar to to the Windows products uh, with a a start menu, if you will, in the lower left corner. Um, they were trying to attract, attract Windows users users obviously. They wanted to have a similar uh, GUI that, you know, people could move through and they were kind of comfortable with. This argument that was going on then is not any different than the arguments going on now with, you know, 3 and KDE and MATE and Cinnamon and Unity. They're desktop managers. They are, you like what you like and you use what you use. I remember upgrading to Red Hat 7.2, uh, and the reason I remember it was the first time that I had to order three CDs for uh, a distro, and prior to that was just a single CD. Um, I didn't have very much on my uh, home directory, so I burnt those contacts to a CD, and I did a complete fresh install, and it was nice because it let me choose EXT3 file system. I'm getting a new kernel, 2.4.7 this time good uh, gnome 1.4 was a desktop K office was in there a number of other things that of course you know you could add and load as you wanted to I did a little checking just to check dates uh, Red Hat 7.2 was released in October of 2001 I had been out a little while when I did the update so it's probably you know sometime that uh, midwinter January February 2002 I remember that it was snowing the night that I did the update were going to be snowed in the next day Um, somewhere a few months down the road uh, I upgraded to Red Hat 7.3 this time I just did an upgrade from 7.2 to 7.3 I had been reading things and and thought I would give that a try Uh, 7.3 was released in May of 2002 it had a 2.4.18 kernel it didn't appear to be that much different from 7.2 visually it was very much the same Uh, it was primarily updated programs and so forth but at this point, I began to have some dependency issues. Uh, that struck me as odd, but still being new and not knowing, I just kept going because uh, I didn't know any better. I was also trying some Mandrake RPMs on my Red Hat machine. Uh, I've since learned that that might not have been the wisest idea. Um, some things worked, some things didn't. But again, this is all an experiment, and it didn't keep a huge amount of stuff on this computer, for example, or, um a history of type letters to my parents. I didn't store those. I kept printing them on paper and keeping those. I didn't keep a lot on the computer at that time. 7.3 was a little bit... Well, I had my issues with the software dependencies, but I didn't get too excited about it because you know everything kept coming along. Red Hat 8 was coming soon. So I I just waited and got along with things. When I did my install of Red, Red Hat 8, um, I still had hardware issues. Uh, the first updates of 8.0 didn't help that much. Uh, I still had programs would crash and quit and go away, and, and, you know, I, I couldn't tell for sure what was going on. I began to think that maybe Red Hat was ignoring the consumer, but I know now that's not true. So I kept thinking about the software issue, and how it might be software related, it might be hardware issue, I don't know. And I'm at my local micro center wandering around one day, just kind of thinking and looking at things and, and dreaming about what I could buy in the future. And I go down the software aisle, and here there's a big sign next to a box. It's marked Seuss 9.0. It's on sale. It was a regular price of 40 or $50, and it was on sale for like $20 or so. And I figured for twenty dollars, why not? I mean, let's let's switch distros and see if that makes any difference. I had read that some people had good luck switching distros and things were better and so forth. So I bought the Seus box, the the box set. Uh, take it home. There's a couple of books in there, CDs. I installed it over the Red Hat 8.0, and everything worked. It, it just out of the box, it recognized everything, it configured it. I stopped having those hardware issues that I'd had previously on Red Hat 8.0. Now, history has taught me at this point that potentially I was having a hardware issue with my computer, and because Seuss does things a little bit differently in configurations and so forth, it recognized some of the hardware where the hardware I had may not have been compatible with Red Hat. So that wasn't really Red Hat's fault. That was inexperience on my part. The second computer had been used for various things. What I had learned since I had left Windows was I had learned about Linux Terminal Server Project, the LTSP stuff. Um, as a result of that, I had to learn about NFS, network file systems, uh, DHCP, the assignment of uh, IP addresses to the clients. I learned how to do some command line instructions to to look at hardware within the machine. I was reading online more and more to study what could be done with Linux. The, one of the learning processes, one of them was an issue that I had at work. At work I had a Windows 2000 machine for this expensive preparatory design program that first the company paid for that I used all the time. Uh, we were on a LAN system that connected to a Novell server and I would get this little pop-up in the lower right corner next to the clock that said the LAN was not connected. It would come on and go away and come on and go away. And it was really a nuisance. It wasn't a huge issue. Uh, as with Windows, you tend to ignore some of the things that goes on with it. When the IT people that were there one day, I mentioned it to the guy and said, I'm having this issue with this pop-up. And he said, well, we'll just reload the driver and see if that helps. And... He checked the server to make sure that there wasn't any issues there, came back out and said he didn't think there was any issues, and they claimed to have fixed it. It's, uh, their comment was probably fixed, um, but we'll see, and he was a patient individual and and I think that he was he was wise enough to know his stuff. He was He was pretty good at what he did. I mean, after all, this is the way he made his living. He started his own company and they'd grown to a point where it was him and his son the son had come through and carry on about longhorn really dad was more business focused and, and taking care of his client and so forth but reloading the drivers and the things they tried didn't fix my pop-up issue it continued and finally one day and i kept thinking about this over time what could it be why would it continue if they reloaded the drivers and so forth and i sat back one day and was Uh, off thinking about design and sat back looking at the screen and I happened to kick the land wire that was hanging under the desk uh, and the pop-up came on and I looked and the pop-up went off and I kicked the wire again the pop-up came on and I went okay this might be the land wire so that night at home I made a new land wire that was long enough because I was making them at that point, I wasn't buying them, and I brought it to work, and I switched the wire, plugged it into the little jack underneath the desk, and up through the hole, and plugged it into the computer, and turned the computer on, and I never had that pop-up again. The whole issue the whole time had been this mechanical device, this wire. It had a bad spot in it somewhere, uh, did not matter where, as soon as we figured it out, we threw it away, and it was the simplest mechanical device that, that needed to be replaced, this wire, to fix this problem. So, I learned that. So, this is the end of part one, the boring part. Um, I realized I rambled about some of those issues of memories. Uh, it's nice to go through memories occasionally. Uh, and, and at this time, uh, you know, part two will be coming along later. Um, it's it's where I'm going, and I think part two might be more interesting. I'm going to get into um, some of the stuff that... Uh, came with a job that I took after I left the bad wire place so you survived the boring issue and I'm at the end and uh, thanks for your time I'll see you in part two